I think when I think about the term functional foods, like you said, people have heard of it, but it's not quite clear. And a lot of um, thinking about it is just thinking about food. And really, functional food is a term. It's not a regulatory term, so it's a bit of a buzzword. But it's a term to describe foods that have some kind of bioactive constituent in them that can benefit us beyond that basic nutrition. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Swine It Podcast Show Canada is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like... Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada. Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Veterinary Services, and Demeter Services Veterinaries. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Swine Veterinary Partners offers a full range of animal health and production services to Canadian pork producers. We approach health management through personalized solution with concern for profitability while taking into account performance and the well-being of your animals. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's uh, podcast uh, of Swine It. And uh, my name is John Patience, and it's my honor to be hosting the podcast today. And our guest today, uh, I think you're going to find very, very interesting, is Dr. Allison Duncan, who's with the University of Guelph. And uh, one of her favorite topics is uh, is um, functional foods, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we go any further, Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, John. Okay. And um, many people in our audience, Allison, may not have met you. I'm sure they're familiar with the name, but perhaps you could um, uh, give us a bit of an introduction as to your background and how you ended up here today talking about functional foods. For sure. Yeah. Um, my background is all in nutrition. So I've done all of my education in nutrition. I think I cannot even remember a time in my life where I didn't love and consider nutrition. Um, I think it was really in high school when I first started really focusing on it because I was into sports and things like that and really noticed that what I ate mattered. So from there, I discovered University of Guelph, and that's where I did my undergraduate degree in applied human nutrition with the intent of becoming a registered dietitian, which I did become, and I did an internship at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, which I loved. and became a registered dietitian. And it was really during that time that I really noticed a lot of, you know, rules and um, approaches to therapeutic nutrition that I really wanted to understand more as to why. So that made me discover graduate school and the research process and the scientific ideas. And so I did my MSc in nutritional science at University of Toronto, and I just couldn't I kept asking questions and went to University of Minnesota where I did my PhD. And after that, I worked in um, some consulting areas of nutritional science and some human 
uh, clinical nutrition units. And after that, I started at University of Guelph as a professor where I've been since 2001. Very good. Very good. And uh, uh, perhaps maybe we could start to um, just define what it is you mean by functional foods, Allison. It's a word that gets used a lot. We hear it in the popular press. Certainly in swine nutrition, it's becoming more common, but it's still not what I would call a common topic, right? So if you can help us to understand what it is you mean by the term functional foods. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been thinking about functional foods for quite a long time. Um, a lot of my research has been in this area. I've um, taught a graduate course in this area for a long time. And I think when I think about the term functional foods, like you said, it, people have heard of it, but it's not quite clear. And a lot of um, thinking about it is just thinking about food. And really, functional food is a term. It's not a regulatory term, so it's a bit of a buzzword. But it's a term to describe foods that have some kind of bioactive constituent in them that can benefit us beyond that basic nutrition. So we know food affects our health. Um, we know that it can, food has many constituents in it that can affect our health. But uh, functional foods is kind of going beyond that, beyond our basic nutrition that is preventing deficiency diseases to go beyond optimizing our health. Okay. Okay. So could you maybe give us a few examples? And I should mention um, for the benefit of our audience that your real focus is human nutrition, not animal nutrition, which is fine because uh, human nutritionists have learned a lot uh, from pig nutrition over the years. And, um, and we've learned a lot from human nutrition over the years. And this is a topic where I know human nutrition is ahead of us. So um, maybe if you can give us some examples um, of functional foods. Yeah, so I do. I did want to also add um, before some examples to just kind of put it into perspective when I think about functional foods and the history of them as how this term came. Um, really, the idea of nutrition, we know, and we know a lot from animal nutrition. In fact, pig nutrition has a lot of basic information gained from that. Um, and I actually, um, Ron Ball is my co-advisor. And so I, I learned a lot. We know that a lot of nutrition and our evolution of understanding relates to preventing deficiency diseases. So we don't want to get scurvy. We don't want to get beriberi. We're trying to figure out how much do we need to prevent that. And for the most part, we have really done well in that area. In fact, there's a lot of Nobel Prizes that have been given out with respect to identifying nutritional deficiency disease syndromes and how much we need to prevent those. And as we've evolved in our society, we still have a few issues to contend with in that area. A few nutrients like B12 and vitamin D and iron. But for the most part, we're really evolving, we're quite privileged. And that's where we've considered, you know what, we're gonna figure out how much of these nutrients we need to not only prevent a deficiency, but to reduce our risk of chronic disease. Like we can go a step further and go to optimal nutrition. And along that um, kind of vein of thinking comes, what about these other constituents that are in our food supply, that are in plants, that are in animals, that aren't our core nutrients, but are other things that might affect our health? And so this brings us to some examples that we can probably all be familiar with. So some of these might be, say, antioxidants, that constituents that are in fruits and vegetables that 
have been demonstrated in cell culture, in animal studies to have biological effects that might relate to diseases, say as cancer or heart disease, and kind of trying to keep that oxidative balance in check. And so these constituents might be enhanced in food so as to have a food that could be considered a function present in food. So for example, you could argue that blueberries with their kind of higher content of anthocyanins, a type of antioxidant flavonoid compound can be considered a functional food. We could also consider say a juice that has extra antioxidants added to it could be considered a functional food. So although for the most part, functional foods are considered foods that the bioactive is enhanced in some way, whether that's through some agricultural practice or just added, we could argue that just a food that hasn't been enhanced in any way is a functional food. And so it is a buzzword, it's not a regulatory term. Um, so that, that's part of it. We Considering regulations is another whole area of discussion around the topic of functional foods that we can talk about too. Right, so maybe maybe the fact that it's not a uh, an official term, um, but a buzzword as, as you claim, um, might lead to some confusion on the part of our listeners because different people may be using the term functional food in different ways and indeed in ways that um, Alison Duncan would not use them. And so that can, that can be confusing. Allow me to ask you um, uh, uh, some questions about some particular ingredients that we use in pig diets that we believe have functional properties. And you can tell me, okay, yes, John, that is a, could be considered a functional food or no, it's not. And, and so, so the, the big dog really, because we feed so much of it is soybean meal, um, because of some of the constituents in soybean meal, would that be considered, uh, a functional food? Uh, well, that's interesting. My understanding from pig nutrition is that soybean meal is very commonly used as a source of protein. Um, and we know that soybean, you know, soy, soybeans on their own are a very high quality protein among plant proteins. They are considered a complete protein. And the idea of using them for the piglet is something you're much more familiar with than I am. Um, but in terms of a functional food, I think it would depend on how much the constituents of the soybean would make their way into the products from the pig. So for example, soybeans are high naturally in what are called isoflavones, which are um, plant phytochemicals in the soybean. And phytochemicals in general overall help plants to survive. I remember one of the best definitions of our phytochemicals that I heard was from a plant agricultural scientist discussing how if we are faced with a threat of some kind, we can't, or we can we can just run away, but plants can't. And so they have these chemicals that they can increase their content. And isoflavones have been widely studied for soybeans with their bioactive peptides have also been studied. Now, the core question is how much of that is in the products of the piglet? Um, how much isoflavones or soybean protein are in that? And Obviously, it's not soybean protein in the piglets, it's animal protein. So the concept of functional foods really relates to the transfer of the bioactive through the system, in this case, the piglet, through like its digestive system into its products that we consume. That's the key thing. Um, so yeah, I could give an example in the pig that's been considered. 
So I, I, I didn't ask the question very well, Allison. And, um, I was referring to would a soybean, soybean meal with the isoflavone content, uh, and we know some of the effects that the isoflavones have on the pig, would it be considered a functional food to the pig? So not to the person eating pork, but rather to the pig eating the soybean meal, because we know the isoflavones do have positive effects on the, the pig from a health perspective. So it's not a nutrient response. It's a, it's a response, extra nutrient response, I guess you could call it. Yeah, beyond basic nutrition. So in that yeah. case, yeah, that would satisfy the definition of a functional food for sure. Okay. Okay. So now in human nutrition, then, can you, are there examples of where the functional property has transferred into the meat, which is then consumed by humans and has functional properties? Does, does that happen? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's really what functional foods are from an animal agriculture standpoint. And some of the research that I shared at the Animal Nutrition Conference um, in Montreal a couple of weeks ago. So there's many examples um, and there's many different food matrices and kind of animal agricultural examples ranging from dairy and eggs and beef and pork. And so there's many examples. So for pork, for example, um, there's been a lot of interest in omega-3 fatty acids. So that is feeding the pigs DHA and having it be transferred into the their meat that we eat. So omega-3 pork. Um, and we know that omega-3 fatty acids, particularly DHA, which is a very long chain fatty acid that um, we can get in our diet. It's really a lot in fish and we don't eat as much fish as we should to get as much as is needed to exert health benefits. So the concept of having DHA in foods is really appealing. And so we could get it from omega-3 pork. And there's like many other examples that I can talk about and talk about some of the core issues that we need to pay attention to for functional foods from animal agriculture. Uh, that's great. And, and you picked up on an interesting example, Allison, the, the omega-3 fatty acids, um, uh, because that is a topic of, of considerable current interest in pig nutrition right now, um, as well as, uh, excuse me, from the standpoint of the pig and especially with respect to uh, reproduction. Um, but yes, there are um, uh, people who are have done a work, uh, for example, the folks out at Lacombe Research Center uh, have done quite a bit of work on omega-3s and how to enrich pork with uh, omega-3 fatty acids. So, so that's, a, that's a very current uh, topic of discussion in, in swine nutrition. So that's a great one. But I think our audience would be interested in other ones. You said there's, there's a lot, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much here, but if you could give us other examples, I think that would be of real interest to us. Because obviously pork producers are interested in their product. They're interested in raising pigs, but they're also interested in their product and its um, uh, value in the, in the human food marketplace. For sure. Um, yeah, so I just want to framework the discussion first to talk about how it is that a functional food from animal agriculture could be even created. I kind of think of it as three different ways. So one of the ways would be through genetics, somehow genetically developing a type of animal that would be more um, likely and able to have a certain composition of their products that might be appealing and consider a functional food. 
So I could give an example of that one. Another one could be managing their feed or somehow managing the, um, basically managing the feed or modifying it. And that's probably the most common one, like putting DHA into the, the feed of the piglets. And then another one is after the product's been produced, enhancing it, just adding it, adding the bioactive. So three kind of ways. Um, so some examples. Um, so one example that's kind of garnered a lot of attention from the genetic development standpoint is so-called A2 milk. Um, that, that there are certain cows that can be genetically created to produce only A2 beta casein protein. So this is like, and the reason that that's considered a functional food is that the A1 beta casein uh, protein, the A1 beta casein, that one is what's been considered to kind of be less tolerant from a digestive standpoint. So thinking about people who are lactose intolerant, which is the sugar, not the protein, but people who are lactose intolerant, they um, don't tolerate milk as well. And so it's there's been research done to identify that there is actually a protein constituent in milk that's part of casein um, called A1 beta casein that also is responsible here for um, less digestive tolerance. And if there's less of that A1 and only A2, it's easier digested. So kind of just like overall, we know milk has casein and whey and casein as a major protein, it has alpha, beta, kappa, and here we're beta casein. So we're like kind of three levels down. Um, but there's genetic variants that basically produce only the A2 beta casein. And that product has been researched um, in multiple studies to be better tolerated. We have interest in relation to even sports um, performance. So there's a lot of um, interest in this A2 beta casein. And this is an example of a functional food from a genetic manipulation. Great, great. Okay. A whole bunch of thoughts come into my mind as you're speaking, House, and it's such a fascinating subject. And, and for example, we were just talking the other day about how um, uh, supermarkets, food stores have changed so much in the last 20, 25 years. And they used to be populated by a relatively narrow array of foodstuffs um, that varied very little in their composition. Uh, whereas now when you go into a food store, there are so many different milks. There are different uh, examples of different pork different beef, uh, it's, you know, et cetera, um, different fruits of different origin, et cetera. I mean, the, the, the variety that we are exposed to is fantastic, but gosh, it's gotta be very difficult for a consumer to kind of get their way through all of the marketing information that they're exposed to, to get a good understanding of what really is a good choice from a healthy diet point of view and what isn't a good choice. And, um, you know, that's, uh, do you have any suggestions for, for pork producers who want to talk about their product and the different options available, but also pork producers are also consumers. And so when they go to the supermarket, they are exposed to all these options as well. And can you, we're, I'm going to bring, come back directly to functional foods. Don't worry, we're not leaving that. But that is a an area that I think really troubles a lot of people. For sure, yeah. And I think it relates, as I mentioned earlier, 
the regulatory, the regulations are very relevant to this. And everything you said is so true. It's really amazing. All of the innovation and all of the products that we have access to, it's, it's really incredible. And so you're right in terms of how does a consumer navigate this intense amount of information. So it really does come down to the labels on those products in terms of making decisions and looking at those products. And that's where our regulatory scientists come in at Health Canada because they've created an innovative and high options environment for putting things on labels. So, you know, traditionally, um, when we think about products, obviously it has the title of the product, it has an ingredient list, um, but it's really not that long ago like that we then have mandatory nutrition facts on all the products. So we have that, and that's incredible that we have that in Canada. So um, even more recently, Health Canada has modernized those regulations to make it easier for people to see and understand the nutrition facts table and the ingredients list by putting things like all sugars together, um, putting larger fonts, making it easier to see, having serving sizes, having percent daily values that are based on evidence. So we have all of that for sure. But in addition to that, because people aren't always wanting to look at those nutrition facts and ingredients, and we know with an aging society, those, those um, texts are quite small. And so what's evolved is claims that can be put on what's called front of pack, so front of package is really great real estate for foods for us to be helped by the regulatory environment to make decisions. So here we have probably the lowest hanging fruit is our nutrient content claims. We have so many of those and pork products, for example, can benefit from those because pork is very nutrient dense and there's a lot of highly bioavailable micronutrients in pork and obviously it has protein. And so we have an opportunity to employ nutrient content claims on product on front of pack. And this can help Canadians to seek products that they're looking for to be very high or different terms. It's all regulated and there's a table that's easy to look at and look for those products. So nutrient density is really important. It's the lowest hanging fruit, but it's also super important. So, um, you know, we talked about functional foods are beyond that, but the nutrient density is really core. So those nutrient content claims, they're amazing. We also have what's called nutrient function claims. So you can go ahead and make claims around nutrients in your product relation to biological functions. And there's again, a whole table for that um, in the Canadian Food Inspection Agency Guide to Food Labeling and Advertising. And you can do things like calcium helps to build um, strong bones or vitamin A helps with vision, things like that. And it's kind of taking a step further from the content to the biological function. And we actually have a lot more. So I don't know if you want me to go on, but um, I could talk about this all day in terms of the regulations that Health Canada has put in place to allow for product manufacturers to communicate the healthy attributes of their products to consumers. Right. Okay. I, I'm actually am going to briefly ask you to, to go just a little bit more into that, Allison, because I think it's such an important topic. And as an example, if I want to get information that I think is of high, there's so much information on the internet and to most, you know, if, if it's outside our personal field, um, we really don't know. It, it's hard to know whether it's a quality source of information, but if I want good medical information, I'll go to the Mayo Clinic uh, website. 
I'll go to the Cleveland Clinic website. I'll go to Johns Hopkins website. And I'm pretty confident that I'm going to get fairly good scientific information from those websites as it relates to uh, health and men medicine. You've mentioned uh, the CFIA website for human nutrition. Are there other websites that you would recommend that people go and have reasonable confidence that the scientific information is sound or the scientific basis for the information is sound? Okay, well, I mean, that's an amazing question, John. And the CFAA website is not so much for nutrition information. It's more for complying with regulations. Um, I really think that misinformation is the biggest, one of the biggest problems facing our society and that it's happening left, right, and center now. And especially in the area of nutrition and food and diet, it's, you know, always been something that's kind of been fad diets and things like that, but it's just getting worse and worse and it's really concerning. And so I think the best approach to combating all of that as a starting comment is to, you know, utilize critical thinking and pause and think about the source of this information and think about, you know, how this information is being communicated, who is communicating it. Now, as for credible information around nutrition, it's really registered dietitians um, in Canada. We have Dietitians of Canada and it's a reputable site. These people are trained, they're regulated health professionals, and they are committed to communicating about evidence-based nutrition. And so we have associations that are um, focused on this. We have Dietitians of Canada. We also have Canadian Nutrition Society. Both of these associations have multiple efforts in order to communicate around credible-based um, nutrition information. Now, with respect to the public, it's the role of the registered dietitian to be interacting with the public, different types of clients, um, different types of disease states, and there's also public health nutrition. And so these are all regulated health professionals focused on doing this. And this is where we should be getting our information from registered dietitians. Okay, very good. Okay, I've kind of pulled us off topic here a little bit, but I do think those are questions of interest to uh, to our listeners. But let's let's go back to functional foods. And can um, Allison, can you give us a, a bit of a of a um, historical um, uh, perspective on functional foods? How new is this? Uh, you mentioned that you've been uh, on faculty at the University of Guelph since two thousand and one, um, and um, I'm you know maybe some of our re listeners don't realize that a lot of nutrient requirements, not even talking about functional foods, but nutrient requirements weren't discovered until the 30s, 40s, and 50s. They're somewhat, you know, no, uh, recent uh, discoveries of their requirement. And and uh, selenium, for example, when I was doing my master's at Guelph in 1975, uh, selenium was found to, uh, to prevent mulberry heart disease. Well, that was a massive... Uh, finding and that's that's not that long ago, right? So so that's the nutrient requirement side of things. But let's talk about the functional food side of things. How far back does this go? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And thanks for showcasing that selenium work and just the idea that understanding nutrients and how much we need to prevent deficiency isn't really that new. Um, and so a lot has happened in, in nutrition. I'd say with functional foods, I always think about the kind of origin of it as coming from Japan. Because in the around early 1980s, they came up with a regulation called Foods for Special 
foods for specified health use, FOSHU. So FOSHU in Japan, um, which exists today, is a licensing system that products can have on their front of pack that indicate that they have been scientifically substantiated to have a certain bioactive that improves health. So this FOSHU status um, is, in, in, in my mind, what really kind of started the concept of functional foods. I think also um, the history of functional foods, um, from, from what I understand and my perspective of kind of overviewing and thinking about it, comes from the expansive increase in dietary supplements that also happened. Um, I guess we can think about it a lot in the 1990s um, with our struggle with HIV AIDS. There was a lot of supplements that were being advanced for immunity and these were not very regulated. And thinking about um, the evolution of regulations around this in the US, they passed in 1990, um, 1994, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, the SHEA. And this really helped to regulate these, these supplements. The reason I'm bringing up supplements is they are kind of the bioactives that were then kind of transitioning into, well, what about foods? Like maybe it's better to eat kind of a whole food than it is having this pill. So the combination of the Japanese regulations and the in intense uprise of supplement use in the 1990s, I think is what contributed to the advance of functional foods and thinking about, you know what, let's, let's eat foods and how can we consider the composition of our foods from the standpoint of health beyond basic nutrition. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty darn recent. I would say so. Yeah. You bet. You bet. Tell me, would folk medicine and the, the traditional approaches that have been used by different societies, um, would some of their, um, products or approaches be considered, um, perhaps some version of functional foods? I mean, it's really um, good that you bring that up, John, because when we think about evidence to substantiate health claims, um, we think about you know your randomized control trials and highly design, highly qual high quality designed clinical trials. But we also have a lot to learn from history of use of some of these compounds. And it's interesting that our um, natural health products in Canada, their regulations, which are also fairly recent. And the name of the directorate has changed multiple times, and now it's called the Natural and Non-Prescription Health Product Directorate. Um, when they consider evidence for products to be substantiated and obtain a natural product number in Canada, they actually consider history of use. And they consider those strong, long-term uses of certain constituents, whether it's traditional Chinese medicine, things like that. Those are actually considered high-quality evidence. And so this is relevant, even though there may, may not be these, you know, randomized control trials, those have been used for many, many years. And that is relevant. And that is scientifically relevant. You bet. Great. Well, um, we're getting uh, close to our uh, our time and uh, we still have a few minutes left. So we're not in a, in a rush, but maybe we could end, Allison, by talking about the future of functional foods. And and as somebody who studied this subject and has a great historical perspective on functional foods, and you've also raised the, the specter of misinformation out there about so many aspects of human nutrition, what, 
what do you see as the future of functional foods and um, what role do you see them playing in, you know, in, in human diet? Um, what role maybe do you see them playing in how we produce pork? In other words, trying to generate uh, some functional properties in pork that do not exist right now. And, and then the role that functional foods are going to play in the nutrition of, of humans uh, going forward. All right. Well, that's a great question, John, and a good one to end with. There's really so much to say around that. As we know, functional foods are focusing on that particular bioactive that can affect our health beyond basic nutrition. Um, and there's so much to learn. And so thinking about the future, I would say that one of the areas is really our gut health. When we think about the microorganisms in our gut, we've learned um, over the past years at an exponential rate how determinant they can be of our health. And so continuing to think about and that, focus on that, on what it is that determines their composition. And even in that whole area, coming up with metrics that we can measure and see if certain constituents of our food are making a difference. So that whole area, I think, is, is really important and a lot about the future. Another area I think is really important is just thinking about specific subgroups of our society. Um, for example, older adults, um, the aging demographic is, is really increasing. And the proportion of our population that are older, um, over 65, is rapidly increasing. And I think that we really need to pay attention to that. And there's a lot that could be done for functional foods in this area, ranging from really core nutrient density to more core bioactives that can affect things like eye health and heart disease and cognitive function, all those areas. Um, there's so much really, if I had to choose a couple more, I would get even more focused into so-called personalized nutrition. I think as we all know, we are all so different and there could be ways that we could utilize those differences to create foods that would be focused on individuals um, in addition to subgroups. And then another um, area is affordability. So we know that the increase of um, cost of food has really increased and people are really focused on affordability. And this is an area that um, could make its way into functional food innovation. Um, so those are kind of just four areas. There's many, many more I could talk about. But I think just overall, the future of thinking about functional foods, nutrition, bioactive constituents, there's a lot to learn. And it's all very interesting and exciting. Um, and combating misinformation is always right up there too. Well, Allison, this has been fascinating. I thank you so very much for helping us to gain a better understanding of functional foods. Um, as I listen to you speaking on the topic and your enthusiasm for it, um, I'm going to guess that you just find it really easy to get out of bed in the morning and go to work every day at the University of Guelph because you just seem really, really excited about what you're doing and have, have revealed to us what a great future and important future that functional foods have in human nutrition. Um, but I think also to our listeners, um, advise everyone out there to keep looking at uh, options and opportunities for functional foods in the diet of our pig. And they're going to hear more and more about that as time goes on. So with that, Allison, thank you so very much for giving your time to us today. And uh, we really, really appreciate. So with that, I'll sign off and say goodbye to everybody. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you again at the next uh, Swine and Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.